Mark 14, beginning at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Our next Bible reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The reading today comes from Mark, chapter 15, verses 14 to 32. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. 
A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him.
noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about about the events of Good Friday uh, that we've had read to us from uh, various members of our, our St Stephen's congregation, and thank you to them who read that for us. How are you finding this season? And, and I, I wonder, a bigger question is, when, when did the seriousness of all this hit you? I think it hit me. I remember the Prime Minister making a speech at Parliament where he said 2020 will be the hardest year of our life. And as he said that, I reflected that this is, this is more serious, this is more significant uh, in my own personal history at least than most other things that take place in daily life. The reality is that uh, as, as, as a world, not just as a nation or even just a community, as a world, we are starting to grapple with big questions in life. And one of the biggest questions at the moment that we're grappling with is, uh, how do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with hardship in our life? It might have been a philosophical question. For some of us, it's been a very personal question at times. But for others, it's been a philosophical question. But now the moments that we are encountering are asking us that very important question, how do we deal with suffering and hardship in our life? I think if we're fair, the reality is that West, the Western world, uh, and maybe even our Australian culture, is ill-equipped to deal with suffering. Dr Paul Brand was a, a doctor who went to India to treat people with leprosy, and he had a very, uh, a, a very formative a ministry to people and he returned back to the United States after many years of treating people in abject poverty and great physical uh, hardship. And then he came back to America to treat people and, and he encountered people suffering in America and he, he wrote this, which I think is relevant to us too. He said this, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatised by it. That, 
that might sound harsh, but as we reflect, if you've ever travelled to a developing world or uh, to, a, to a third world country, you have encountered people who are going through significant periods of hardship and suffering in their life, material, physical, uh, relational, and yet they often seem to have a deep joy that bubbles up. And as Westerners, we're often struck, aren't we, by this, and we walk away wondering what is it that gives people such joy in the midst of such hardship. One of the reasons I think that we find suffering and hardship uh, almost insurmountable at points in life is because in the West, in our country, in our community, we measure things on a materialistic term. Now, I don't mean that to be a judgmental description. It's just a reality that for us, a full life, a happy life, is often measured by material uh, measurements. Have we, have we, are we living in a house that we enjoy and we feel safe in? Do we wear the kind of clothes that we want to? Do we have the kind of food that we want to eat on our tables? And this means, of course, that when we encounter moments like we are now, uh, where suffering breaks into our life, we find it much harder to rationalise and understand and find a purpose to suffering and hardship. It's why, even in Australia, where thankfully we haven't experienced the kind of death and loss that other countries in the world have suffered, we are still finding things like social isolation and limits on the kind of goods that we can buy difficult uh, to process. Now, of course, those things are difficult, but the question for us is how do we, how do we endure them? How do we become more resilient in the midst of them? And how do we grow out of this season? Uh, to answer that, I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the Bible and its, its message about suffering. For some people, the Bible apparently says nothing about suffering. It's a moment of escapism. But as you go through the scriptures and you think about them uh, in, a, uh, in a chronological way, if you work from the start of the story to the end of the story, there are numerous examples in Scripture of the Bible talking about suffering. In fact, the Bible's main mandate is to understand why the world is filled with suffering and hardship. Genesis is a book that lays the foundations. The book of Psalms is like an existential get-in-the-head-of-someone-who-is-suffering moment. Job is 42 chapters meditating on this topic of hardship and suffering in the life of a person. The New Testament letter of 1 Peter is the Apostle Peter writing to the early church, helping them to understand how they will deal with suffering and hardship. At each point in the book, suffering is not something that the Bible disregards, but the Bible is intimately connected with, asking questions about. C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia, who himself experienced great amounts of suffering in his life, wrote this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. His point is that suffering has a very important purpose and God is communicating something to us in the midst of suffering. Now, if that's true, if C.S. Lewis's point is true, the question is, what is God saying to us? And I want to say that Good Friday is perhaps the most important moment in understanding what God is saying to us in suffering. Because Good Friday is, I guess, the crescendo of suffering in the history of the world where an innocent man suffers greatly, extraordinarily, uh, for the mistakes and the failings of many. 
So what, what is God saying in Good Friday? And to help us answer that question, I just want to look at two characters uh, that emerge in the account of Jesus' last hours. The first is the centurion who, uh, who speaks at the end of the account. We suspect that this centurion had, had seen a lot of the events that took place in the hours leading up to the cross. He most likely would have been in that guard who mocked and uh, tortured Jesus before he went to the cross. And of course, he was there when he saw Jesus die. And he says those extraordinary words, surely this man was the son of God. There's been a question in Mark's story about Jesus' identity. And now here, in the moment of suffering, greatest suffering and hardship, his identity is revealed as God himself. And we can learn a couple of things about that from, from those moments, from those words. First of all, ultimately suffering is a product of humanity's rejection of God. There it is, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dies, experiencing the greatest suffering. He experiences it. Why? Because the relationship between God and humanity is broken, is broken. There is no greater testament to this reality than Good Friday, when humanity meets God and tries to kill God. The relationship is broken and suffering stems out of that. But secondly, and extraordinarily, the reality is yet in spite of this rejection, God throws himself into the centre of suffering. There he is, right at the epicentre of this great storm of suffering. God is suffering with us. This is extraordinary. Most other religions have no place for God experiencing suffering. But in the Christian religion, not just that God knows about suffering, but he experiences the most extraordinary version of it. Think about Jesus' life. It's the full gamut of suffering. He, is, he faces great injustice. He is physically tortured. He is emotionally cut off and ultimately spiritually destroyed in the moment of the cross. And the reason we had that first reading from Mark 8 written to us, read to us was because in that moment, Jesus is many weeks before the crucifixion prophesying about his death. And everything he says takes place in those last hours of his life. See, Jesus knew what was coming and he never resiled from it. He never stepped back from it. Why? Because God, God wants to be with us in our suffering. You might have noticed that our service has been filled with prayer and we pray, we pray not to tell God about our suffering, but to share our sufferings with him. And we know that God will do that. We know it because Good Friday tells us that God threw himself into the centre of it. But Good Friday is not just God affirming the reality of suffering. If a young man comes to you and tells you that his beloved has broken up with him, uh, it's one thing to say, oh yes, I've been there before, I've experienced that, I know that sense of heartache and pain. That is, of course, a comfort in a sense, but what he really wants is for someone to take the pain on themselves, to take it off them. And you see, Good Friday is not just God's suffering with us. It is something much more profound. You see, the events roll through, and there it is, at the last moment, he takes his last breath, Mark tells us, and then he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We call it the cry of dereliction, this moment of absolute abandonment, absolute isolation, absolute aloneness. Jesus Christ is left to bear the sin of the world. 
the sin of the world. He is alone, absolutely alone. Even his heavenly father in that moment has chosen not to hear him. Not to hear him. Why does he do that? Well, in that moment, that is not suffering without a purpose. That is suffering with a very clear purpose. See, Jesus Christ is experiencing suffering on that level and to that extent and for that reason so that we don't have to. He is being isolated so that we can be drawn close to God. And at the heart of the Christian gospel, you see, is not just that God understands our suffering, that he has an open ear, even that he can say, "Uh aha, I've been there, I know what it's like. But it is God saying, ultimately, I have suffered at a greater level so that there is some suffering you don't have to go through, so that you do not ever have to be alone, so that you know ultimately that God is with you and God is for you and you are safe in his arms. But knowing that is not enough, you must accept it. Because actually at the heart of the Christian life is a belief that God has suffered for us. God has suffered for us. I want to think of one last person, uh, Barabbas. He's that criminal who's mentioned in the story. And uh, as we finish, perhaps put yourself in Barabbas' shoes. What it must have been like. He was an insurrectionist, a criminal. He would have woken that morning and would have thought to himself... This is the end of my life. I've made some foolish decisions and now I'll pay for it. He gets dragged out to Pilate's court. He smells the fresh air for perhaps the last time. He sees the crowd and he wonders, will I see some family or friends? Can I catch their eye? Perhaps one last fleeting glimpse before they haul me off, torture me and kill me. And then suddenly, this man is dragged out with him. People talked about him as the king, but now he's beaten, he's bruised, he's bloodied, and people are mocking him. And rather than looking like a king, he's meek and mild, and then the crowd's noise rises in this moment. And before Barabbas knows it, they're unlocking his chains and they're throwing him down into the crowd and he's with his family and he looks up and he sees this one who would have been king being dragged off to die what was his death. And in that moment, Barabbas realises something, that Jesus Christ has died the death that should have been his. In a sense, to be a Christian is to see your place as the place of Barabbas. Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He endured great suffering for you so that you don't have to endure that. You may not have all the material joy that you long for, but deep down you will have a deep spiritual affirmation from the Father. You will know that he loves you, that he's made a place for you, And he will not turn his back on you because he did on his own son. And that is Jesus' great joy, to endure the cross for you. Now, that won't answer all your questions about suffering, but I hope that this Good Friday might prompt you to explore them a little more, and particularly to explore Jesus Christ who sits at the heart of the Good Friday story. Take up our invitation. Do Simply Christianity. Work out whether Jesus really is who we say he is. Let me pray. 
Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who willingly went to the cross for us, to bear our price for us, so that we could rejoice in his privileges. Father, we pray that you would make this truth real to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.